Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, an architect and a director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. In each episode, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I'm joined by the architect Sarah Wigglesworth, and we talk about her latest project, Haycroft Gardens. This is the first one-off house to be designed by Sarah Wigglesworth Architects since Stock Orchard Street, the groundbreaking home and office, and a project known by some as Straw Bale House, completed over 20 years ago. Haycroft Gardens is a home designed on a backland plot in London that continues the studio's sustainable agenda. It is designed to passive sustainable principles and to encourage local wildlife habitat. However, it's the design as a multi-generational home that really sets this project apart. I talked to Sarah about designing the home for three generations of the same family and about why Sarah thinks designing homes for multi-generational living will become increasingly important. It was a pleasure to interview an architect that has been so influential on how we design for living in the 21st century, and I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. If you'd like to find out more about Sarah Wigglesworth Architects and the project Haycroft Gardens, you can find information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Sarah, and uh, welcome to another architecture podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Um, so we're going to be talking about Haycroft Gardens that you completed um, recently as a practice. Um, and it's a home for three generations of the same family. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about this family and what they were trying to achieve when they approached you with this project. Yeah, of course I can. So we were approached by Ben who is the son of Christine, and at the time, his partner was pregnant, so a third generation of his family was about to be born, and um, he said to me he wanted to build a house for his mother. His mother had bought a plot of land, and the plot of land was Backland Site in northwest London, and sort of in, like, metro land, so sort of post-war suburbia, quite low density, but actually now very much sort of subsumed within uh, London's conurbation with all of the services around and so forth. So his, uh, his plan was to build a very green home for him and his mother, um, m- mainly for her to live in, but for them to um, potentially move into so that when she needed some carers, they were on site. And that struck us as a really interesting agenda because at the time I was working on this um, project looking at older people's housing and uh, Christine was in her late 70s at that time. She's now in her 80s, I believe. And um, Ben's son is now like four years old. Um, And it just struck me that this intergenerational living, which, you know, used to be quite a common thing really, Um, in our culture was a very lovely way of allowing each generation to sort of care for the other um, with a sort of balance in maybe who was the sort of major occupant of the house depending on who needed the most care and obviously at the moment it's probably you know 
the child on the one hand, but also the granny on the other. And of course, that will shift as time goes by. And bearing in mind the broader picture in our society about how care is increasingly difficult to get hold of, very expensive, and so forth, this idea that you're actually in a kinship network, which offers this intergenerational care seemed a really nice agenda. And so we we sort of hooked onto that really as um, a way of beginning to drive the thinking of the project. And and that's kind of what unlocked it for us. Mm-hmm. So it's quite good timing because it's just on the back end of the, the research project that you've done. Yeah, well, actually, it was about in mid-course, oddly enough. But I mean, I'm not sure that we had entirely begun to think about this idea of intergenerational living or multi-generational living. Difference being, really, we think of multi-generations as being um, different generations living in the same house, like as a kind of kinship mm-hmm. network. Whereas intergenerational might be more like your traditional sort of city street where you might have actually people of all different ages living cheek by jowl, looking out for each other and sort of knowing their neighbours and looking out, you know, to find if they're okay, if they haven't been seen for a while and casual encounters, that sort of thing. So um, we, we were kind of coming at it from the perspective of the older person and, you know, Christine's needs were quite foremost in our mind at that point, really. So she wasn't um, very mobile. She could walk, but she couldn't walk far. Um, and so, you know, all of the issues around things like level thresholds and what's good in terms of an environment for older people, like really good daylight because your eyesight's going to be dimming a bit, make sure that it's really warm and not drafty because older people tend to spend longer at home. Um, things around sort of health and well-being. She was a great gardener, actually, and wanted very much to have a garden as the focus of the dwelling. Um, and she had a lot of books. And, you know, we teased these things out in the process of really developing the brief with Ben. And like all these things, you know, it started off as one thing and probably morphed into something slightly different. I mean, I think he he, he was... Amazing, because he was actually, he's a designer, he's a graphic designer, and he had very beautiful design sensibilities. So he had done quite a lot of homework, looking at examples of things that he really liked. He made lots of assumptions about the sorts of things they might need to do, like he was convinced we were going to have a basement, and as it happened, we didn't do that. I mean, basements are quite expensive to excavate and stuff, and in the Mm -hmm. end, we didn't need to, and, you know, costs got the better and all the rest of it, so that was absolutely fine. So it's essentially on one level um, with these level thresholds. But the site um, is on a slope, so we had to negotiate the gradients and things like that to make sure that everything was entirely sort of easy to navigate both for Christine and also for you know baby buggies and all the things that you've got on wheels which need to um, glide over thresholds and things as well so Mm -hmm. essentially yeah that that's one of the things that sort of determined how the levels were set out to make it work and in terms of starting on this project just doing a a one-off house as a practice um, we all know Stock Orchard Street and um, a very kind of global recognition um, project from the late 90s. I read somewhere that you hadn't been approached since that project to design a one-off house since. Um, is that true? <laughs> uh, that is true, yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I find that amazing. But it, equally, that's, it, it's very interesting to then 
is this the first one of house you've you've designed as a practice since then or constructed? Well, let me think. Actually, it's not entirely true because we did have a client who came to us in about, I guess, like 2005 or something, who had a who already had a little timber dwelling in the New Forest. Um, but it and we did design sort of semi-design something for him, but in the end it his home was engulfed by the new um, national park and it became really difficult to get anything built there and there was mm-hmm. a the time wasn't right because it was in the middle of the inquiry about whether to make it a park and so on and so it didn't quite fit and then his wife became ill so that didn't really that was a stalled start I'd say um, but yes I mean Ben's one was really the first that we literally the first that we got after Stock Orchard Street. Mm-hmm. And I've often mused about that because I think it's quite interesting that we weren't approached. And I mean, if you want to know why, I think um, I, I think the project was a bit sort of too out there really for a lot of tastes. Um, I think aesthetically it's a bit challenging for a lot of people. I think a lot of people have their real estate and sort of money wrapped up in their property. And so there is a sense of what its value is on the marketplace, always entering the conversation. And that does cramp your style a bit because anyone who's ever had anything to do with, say, insurance companies or mortgage brokers or anything like that, you know, they look at something and immediately they jump to conclusions. And so, you know, here it's very unconventional construction and people immediately think, oh my goodness, Mm -hmm. it doesn't look what I would expect an expensive building or a one-off building to look like. Not that this building is expensive. And I think that's the other thing. I mean, often people build one-off houses for quite wealthy people and they often tend to be in rural locations where sort of land and status really come into it. We're much more interested in what a sort of um, relatively modest urban prototype might be and Ben's really fitted that niche. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not rich people, the site is not enormous Um, and even Stock Orchard Street you know, it's hardly the most salubrious site in North London. It's adjacent to a railway line, et cetera, et cetera. And, but, but, but you know, and, and we never intended to build as much as we intended. It was an accident that we found out we had acquired the amount of land we did. <laughs> and so we decided to expand from a house into a house and an office um, as a sort of live-work project. But that was a bit of an accident, really. <laughs> um so we just took our chances when the opportunity came along, you know. Mm-hmm. But but what I'm really saying is it's it's not exactly your kind of posh house in a posh mm-hmm. location, and perhaps that's not very appealing to people. And it and because of its un- unconventionality, um, I think that's not appealing either. And I think people look at the building and think, oh, we're going to get one of those, you know. Mm-hmm. Rather than thinking these people are innovators or, you know, I like the spatial arrangements or this is inventive or, you know, what other, other, the more what you might call subliminal aspects of design, which are not quite as instantly recognizable as its appearance, you know, its visual appearance. Yes. Um, 
And do you think that was on the radar or that Ben and Christine might have been also thinking that? And when they approached you, would you think they were approaching other architects as they well? They were. I didn't know that at the time, actually. I mean, we do quite often ask that when people approach us because we like to know whether or not they've come to us deliberately because they like what we do mm. and they've singled us out after a bit of research. And I'm always pleased to know if that is the case because it means that they've done their homework and they've come yes. to you for really good reasons. Um, I think in Ben's case... He had done. He had spoken to some other architects as well, but you know when they approached us, they said we'd like you to do the project. So I, I assumed he was one of those people who who knew what they wanted and had come to us for very good reasons. Mm-hmm. And he was it was clear that most of the reasons were about you know they wanted a green building, they wanted an energy efficient building, they wanted a building which put the users right at the forefront of what um, you know what we were doing for, for them. And mm-hmm. I do often think of architecture as being something where architects fall into two categories, those that build the buildings that the architect wants and those that build the buildings that the clients want and listen and actually provide what they're um, trying to aim at, albeit they're giving, you know, physical and spatial kind of, um, yes, I suppose sort of meaning to all of those Mm -hmm. things which people are grasping at when they come to you you know that that's your job in the end is to make sense of it Mm -hmm. for them so it sounds like clients had a very clear idea what they wanted but i think they did yeah it's kind of as a brief kind of tailor-made for you because it's not you know the multi-generational living and the research work that you've done it's not something that's necessarily widely talked about I, i couldn't think of another architect myself that i'd say oh I would regard them as a specialist or someone that researches or I does think, projects. I think that's right. I, I'm not sure they were... Well, I, I suppose they were really saying it, that it was a multi-generational house, but I, I'm not sure they were as clear about it as it emerged in my mind mm-hmm. through the process. And I think that was just a lucky accident that in a way it was filtered through a lot of the thinking we were doing around the Dwell project at the same time. And so it just became a really important hook on which to hang it. It's not that it can exist, it can't exist, you know, outside of that. I mean, as a just a home, it's a beautiful home. Um, it just happens also to be able, because it's got, th- you know, the the three bedrooms so it it can kind of mix and match and do a whole number of things Mm -hmm. for you um and that always seems to me to be something added value i mean i think it i think it is really important for the architect to try and sort of get underneath the uh perhaps quite um straightforward you know accommodation list or list of things i've seen and i like Mm-hmm. So to get under the skin and find out what's really the motivating thing behind the project, and I'd say that's true with all projects, actually. You know, we're always looking for what's what's the the real agenda here. What's the sort of motivation, and that that, that helps us to give sense to it, really. How do you do that? How do you get under the skin of a project brief? I suppose I'm really, I mean, of course it is an intersection with what I'm interested in at the moment, personally, but, which I think, you know, was really lucky with Haycroft Gardens. But I think it's also like one's, one's thinking about um, the dynamic. I suppose it's a bit like a bit of psychology, you know, going on behind and where the, where's the power lie in this thing, you know, what, or what's just a really interesting cultural agenda behind this, which mm-hmm. has not necessarily been teased out and articulated in quite such a way before, but which is a gift, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose we were always looking for that in, 
in a project. And sometimes I think you don't even know that when you're working on it. It's only really afterwards that you suddenly realize, oh, yeah, that's what we were doing. Yeah. Or this is what we've got, you know. And, I, and I, I think that's partly true with something like Stock Orchard Street, actually, because, I mean, at one level, it started off as very pragmatic. You know, oh, we've acquired this extra bit of site, so why don't we build um, a kind of a, a workspace here as well and it can function as a... Um, a pension and all of these things, or if, you know, we fall on hard times, we can let it out or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, come COVID, you think, blimey, it's really lucky we've got an office <laughs> next door. <laughs> yeah. um, or, you know, when I was teaching as well as working here, you know, it was really handy to be able to have everything kind of on the doorstep. It just makes life very much easier, like not to have the commute and, and all that. So... Mm-hmm. It, it had lots of lovely benefits that I perhaps didn't really quite realise at the time. Well, a multi-generational home pre-COVID or through COVID has its benefits as well. So Definitely it does. Absolutely, yeah. we found that as well, yeah. Yeah, I, I do wonder if you know, they, the impact of the last few years has maybe put more of an emphasis on that aspect as well of I think bringing it has. family closer. I think there will be an increased amount of sort of flexible and um, adaptable dwellings that or workspaces, you know, that can kind of double up, I think, and, and do a number of things and possibly things we haven't even expected yet. And I mean, of course, you know, our planning system really is the product of sort of modernism where everything wants to be categorized in very particular ways. Mm. But I think we're beginning to realize that perhaps they're quite constraining those categories and, um, you know, something a bit looser uh, might serve us a bit better where you could be a bit more fluid about how you carve something up. I mean, I know why they are the way they are because they're there to sort of protect certain aspects of our lives. But I think something like a live-work um, category could actually be very useful, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think it's with technology, it's likely to be much, much more commonplace going forward, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. people at least can work from home. I suppose where things are issues around health and safety or they're very dirty or they're polluting and things like that, you, you don't necessarily want them at home. But mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it, for the history of humanity, mostly we've worked and lived around the same place. You know, it's really only since industrialization that that's changed. And mm-hmm. I guess our memories are quite short. <laughs> <laughs> and with um, Haycroft Gardens and, and from a planning point of view, did you come across challenges and constraints with, with a project, not necessarily a box ticking project? Yes. Um, so... Actually, we were refused planning first time round. And one of the things, um, looking back on the brief that, that Ben sent, um, he was thinking that it, he would like it to be two stories, um, but that he recognised, given the environment that it was in, which was sort of suburban North London, that it would likely be a building which was um, subservient to the main buildings on the street. In other words, it would be treated like a back building, an outbuilding or something like that, an annex. Um, so the first iteration was, which we applied for planning had a mezzanine in the roof space. So it was a big cathedral roof and you could go up some stairs near uh, where the wood-burning stove was and go onto this mezzanine. Um, and that could have been a workspace, um, you know, reading nook, whatever, 
But that was refused on the basis that the building got too tall and so we had to reduce the height to single storey. Um, we actually did get a planning um, advisor on, um, planning consultant on at that stage and they kind of helped us to craft it in such a way that it could be seen as a secondary structure, uh, almost like a garden structure, a backland structure, if you like. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of narrative about this um, major minor thing came in to the frame and that was, that was fine. And eventually we got, we got planning, but it was, you know, like all these things, it's a bit painful. You have to let go of certain things in order to gain other things and so forth. But, you know, it worked out in the end, luckily. So I think everybody yeah. was relieved. And in some ways it was more realistic because it's, also reduced the amount of building, it tightened the whole thing up. And I think I often think that sometimes these challenges are quite good for a project because yes. they act as these sort of quite important constraints, which mean you have to be clear about what's really essential about what mm. you're doing and let go of other things. Yeah. Were there any other things that maybe came into, because you mentioned right at the beginning talking about one-off houses and that kind of financial impetus sometimes of making profit. And um, was there any sort of temptation here to overdevelop this site as seeing it as an opportunity to, that, might, that was conflicting with the design at all? Don't think so. I mean, I think Ben was always really clear that he just wanted it to be a really beautiful family home. And I, um, looking, again, looking back on the brief, he was really clear that he wanted it to be very high quality and he wanted to protect his... Um, you know, financial uh, investment in the building. And that's fair enough. And in fact, you know, his choice of finishes, they're not lavish, but they're very beautiful, like, um, you know, a wood floor in certain areas where the bedrooms are, for example, where your sort of bare feet are likely to mm -hmm. touch the floor. Um, he wanted in wood... Um, and with various different types of wood, like in, in fact, in the end, we had a Polish builder and the Polish builder replicated quite an expensive looking parquet that had been seen in Chelsea, but did it for about half the price, <laughs> <laughs> um, which was, you know, really fortunate. And it looks amazing. I mean, it looks, it does look the business, you know, mm -hmm. so there were some lovely aspects like that. But other bits are quite relaxed, you know. I mean, there's nothing in it which is particularly expensive. There's little bits of ground terrazzo which were selected for their colourways and things. But the main floor is sort of poured resin. It's a, a sort of eco-resin. So it just forms a really uh, sort of monolithic, you know, continuous surface. Um, and then it's just brick paviors and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So as a site and the, the layout, just to sort of give the bigger context of, of how you've designed this house, because um, it's a back plot, so it's accessed down the side of someone That's else's right. house yes. off a sort of typical suburban street. Can you maybe sort of describe a little bit of how this space is laid out, how you've designed it to be kind of used so it can adapt for generations to come and how, yeah. how that's kind of influenced it? I'll try. So, yes, you enter through a sort of garden wall, um, on the street frontage, so adjoining the very last house in the row on a cul-de-sac, and it's the width of about a double garage. So you can actually drive a car in, and there is a space to park a car, but as you go through um, the door in the wall, you come into a long, thin, sock-like sort of space, which is on a slight gradient going up 
because um, I said it's on a slope. And on the left-hand side is a sort of, I suppose it's really a, an outhouse or garage building. Ben originally wanted that to be a workspace, a sort of artist's studio, mm-hmm. but we weren't granted permission for that. So it's a bicycle store, a wood store, and that sort of thing. But it's the first sort of little outpost of the building. You pass that, and then it's a planted garden, sort of front garden, um, with a, a bench halfway up so that Christine can rest on the way up mm-hmm. to the house. Yeah. Then you reach the threshold. And actually, the first thing you see on the left-hand side is a corner window, which is where the kitchen is. So you've gone through this quite long sort of um, axial entrance towards the house. And it looks very low and very modest. And there's a sort of, um, what would you call it? A kind of glass house on the corner. It's actually clad in um, opalescent sort of poly uh, carbonate, thick, thick wall, Rodeca. Um, and in a way, that's a reference to one of the few structures we found on the site when we first went on the site visit, which is a greenhouse. Must have been left over from, you know, the fact that it was a dairy farm right up until the 1920s. Right. And it had been like an outbuilding in the market gardens. Um, and in fact, what was very dilapidated was refurbished and reincorporated into a sort of bower structure, which is in the middle of the garden. But this was a bit of a kind of take on that. So it's like an indoor-outdoor lobby space. And essentially that is the corner of an L. And on the left is the main living spaces, the shared spaces. And on straight ahead, sort of going up the long axis of the garden, um, are the bedrooms. So you're turned to the left because that's where the light is. And you go into the kitchen diner, and then there's a sort of, um, and then there's the wood burning stove, and uh, beyond that is the living room, which is almost configured like a kind of cozy snug. You know, it's the last bit of the um, the building going left, and you know you sink into sort of deep sofas and um, by the fire, mm-hmm. but that axis overlooks the garden, and the garden is tiered. Um, on with sort of Cortan panels, which act as these mini retaining walls. They're about uh, 450 high, I suppose. And that's really good because it means Christine doesn't have to bend over in order to do her gardening. And you climb up steps to it where the bower is sort of in the uh, centre of the plan, I guess, against the, the party wall next door to the left. And there's a place to sit out and it's shaded by this bower so it's really lovely. It's a sort of centerpiece to the whole garden and it's been planted beautifully as a bit of a riot of all sorts of lovely perennials and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, And then the, the bedroom wing takes off down a corridor. The corridor is slightly tapering, a bit in the manner of sort of Asplund's um, houses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love his work. Um, and, you know, there's bathrooms and the three bedrooms and in the end, the last room along the um it's enfilade really is uh christine's uh, bathroom and bedroom with a, a corner window again where there's a desk space which looks back towards the garden so it sort of mirrors the first encounter you have with the building with, which has got the corner kitchen window here yes. it looks back over the garden so it's very simple but by that stage the ground is at sill level 
you know, outside the master bedroom. So, you know, you're kind of looking out on plants absolutely at your eye level. Um, and it's, yes, it's, it's sort of a retaining wall at that structure, at that uh, retaining structure at that point in the building. So physically the building has been cut into yes, the ground. So, exactly. so it remains level. Exactly. So it's sort of semi-buried at the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a real challenge with a sloping site is that having, you know, a very important aspect to the design is having it all on exactly. one sort of level. Exactly. Yes. And if we hadn't done that, we would have had to have steps everywhere or, you know, make it very convoluted ramp-wise and make takes a lot of space and so forth. So that was the kind of preferred solution, really. Very much as a house, it's very much like a courtyard layout, isn't it? The yes. house wraps around the garden and that conservatory, the bower that's existing item is on the other side, kind of frames frames the little garden that's in the middle. And all the living spaces look onto outside right. space, onto the garden. Exactly. And I think yeah. what's important there is that you everybody's got contact with nature. Very, very important for your well-being and, um, you know, to kind of entice you outside if um, if you can go as well. But it also sort of reminds you, you can always see the other part of the building, so you're never alone. Even if you want to be private, you can always sort of refer back to the other part as well, which is really nice. Yes. And, it, and this is not a typical kind of granny flats approach where, you know, people might sort of develop their house and then have a separate annex and it's, it's separate. Like you said, you can all the spaces can see in... Um, on each other did that does that sort of present its challenges as well from a design aspect from three generations living together i suppose so i mean i think um well like all families you know there is probably strife as well as you know joy (laughs) (laughs) but i suppose this you know the site wasn't enormous and i think you know there was a sense of the family wanting to bond and so the fact that it's all in one building, I'm not sure is a real problem for them. Mm. I think it could have played out in many ways, but I think they did want to live together. But I think, you know, it's a balance, isn't it, between, you know, allowing enough privacy where if you kind of really need to get away and want to be private, you can. But if you also want to be sociable, you can do that too. And it's sort mm. of trying to strike the right balance on that. I think I think it, it, it works and, you know, I think... There possibly could have been other solutions, but and, and possibly the mezzanine might have been a, a nice way to try and achieve that because again, you know, you can kind of go up in a crow's nest and still be in the same auditory space as others, but you know, be on your mm-hmm. own as well, and that would have given perhaps a third way of doing it, but mm-hmm. that was not to be. And that mezzanine, that's the one that's shown, and you've done these beautiful cutaway sketches, <laughs> kind of right. aerial axonometric view. Um, that's shown in there. But what you've explored with these sketches is how the house can develop or be adapted to different circumstances and different yeah. generations. What kind of things were you exploring there that had an impact on the architecture? Like what scenarios did you play out? Well, I suppose one of the things um, was, I think, you know, Cooking together, dining, eating together is really important for people to sort of feel like they're part of something. So sharing of food is a gift, isn't it? Sort of expression of, 
your love for someone. So I think that was really important. And the dining table sort of sits in front of these big windows that also can go outside. And so you could dine outside as well. There's, um, I think the living room and its hearth, I think the hearth was really important. And of course, I mean, obviously that's a very kind of potent symbol of the idea of um, life, of continuity and so forth. And that's been recognized for like millennia. So, and, and Ben was really clear from the beginning that he wanted a wood burning stove. So that was fine. Um, I think by contrast with the dining room, which is very open to the outside, I think we saw the living room as being more like a burrow where you could sort of hunker down and feel Mm. like you, um, were kind of nurtured by the building, you know. So, the, again, trying to create these different moods and different settings around these different points in the plan. Um, I mean, the, the pragmatic things are, I mean, you can get out of some of the bedrooms, although you can't get out of Christine's because that's very hunkered down, literally sort of burrowed into the ground. Um but it also has this sense, it's top lit, this corridor that leads to the bedrooms. And there is this sense of sort of withdrawal as you go down that. And again, I think mm. there's, that's really important too. It's the, the whole corridor is lined with bookshelves. And there's, again, this sense of sort of, you're getting buried in books and in the imagination and all of these things that it implies in, in a way to go into the world of literature. Um, and, uh, what else? I mean, pragmatically, you know, there's lots of sort of level thresholds. So, you know, the ease of transition between spaces is just made so much easier that way. And I think, mm-hmm. um, although a lot of architects sort of rail against the idea of not being able to change levels, and that's perhaps sort of one of the tropes of modernism, in a way, I'm not so fussed about that. I think you can do that in other ways through um, changes in ceiling heights, which we've done with lighting, uh, guiding your way around the place. I, th- I suppose wayfinding is also really important, but it's the, it's that atmosphere I'm talking about as well. But mm-hmm. how, as you transition from space to space, you get these different feelings about um, what the mood of it, of of the room is, and um, what it affords you really to do, and what invites you, how it invites you to occupy mm-hmm. it, without being completely strict or dogmatic you know i think yeah. i think the notion of a sort of creative occupation of space is one of the most important things i feel about making um architecture is that you want to suggest ways in which people might feel the mood of a thing and yet actually they're invited to be free about what mm. they do there you can't control their behavior so you might as well let them get on with it and yes. enjoy the creativity in living in different ways, you know, and responding yes. in different ways. And I think that's that's my measure of success, really. Mm. And it's the, I mean, the attention to detail as well, like you mentioned earlier, of the, the bench sort of halfway along that entrance from the street and the, the planters being sort of 45 centimetres high. That yeah. kind of also extends to the to the hearth as the hearth as well in the in the middle of the house. Of, I understand you you designed that so there's a space where Christine can sit and, yes. and kind of tend to the fire as well. Exactly. Um, and but these details kind of run through the house of what I've read about this, just everything down to everyday items such as like shower controls and and things like that have all mm. been have all been considered. Do you think that's something amiss slightly? Do you think it's a, an overlooked? aspect again or or do you think it's an extreme thing of you know often you can get 
accessibility designs that are so extreme one way, but they don't have that beauty and that kind of emotion of space that you're, you've been talking about yeah. here with this house. Yes, I think there there is a possibility of that, definitely. I mean, I think, um, as I said before, I'm really interested in um, trying to put yourself in the user's shoes and mm. think about what they might be wanting to do or thinking about as they're going into a space, or their response might be. And, and also trying to invite, um, I suppose, sort of invite different ways of inhabiting space as well. So if you take something like the shower, for example, um, I mean, I suppose, you know, I, I always think about, um, you know, getting wet when you're turning the shower on because actually the controls are under mm -hmm. the shower, you know, and... Uh, trying to sight the controls distant from that so you can turn the shower on and it's already warm then by the mm -hmm. time you actually have to get wet. Things like that, you know, really simple. Um, but also, you know, controls that are easy for people who might be arthritic or, you know, have different dif difficulty with levers or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know, trying to think that through. And I think for older people, that's really important and something, you know, we came to be really alert to um, in the Dwell project. Of course, there's part M as well. And, you know, that's really helpful because I think it gives you very baseline guides to what you should be doing. But I think the other thing is, you know, even something like you mentioned the walk up to the main front door. So even in the garden, you know, we've provided a little seat just outside of the dining room door. So you can sit and just contemplate what's ahead of you. If you might get a bit exhausted about the thought of walking the whole length of the garden, which isn't far, but when you know you're you're older and you you can't move very fast or very far, that's an important thing to mm -hmm. be able to rest. Um, and and we provided this little um, what's the word bay window seat, uh, which somehow sits on the cusp between the uh, dining room and the living room, but it projects out into the garden so it's sort of part of the garden space as well and it's opposite the hearth so again there's this sort of little moment of transition where you can just secrete yourself away and read a book in great daylight and things like that so it's right really trying to sort of make these opportunities to um imagine how you could live in somewhere as and, and sort of enjoy it to the mm -hmm. greatest ability um yeah and um, you mentioned that the, a very important part of the brief was that the building was green, so it was, it was a sustainable <coughs> building. This is a this has been designed as a passive house, is that correct? Yeah, it was designed passive house, but it, I mean, it didn't get the T-shirt partly because a lot of passive house um, uh, goods and products come with a bit of a um, financial premium, mm -hmm. and so and I'm not. I'm not absolutely sure whether we met all of the air tightness targets and stuff like that, but certainly it was designed with really high insulation values and good air tightness, and it has an air source heat pump, um, so it's well uh, sort of guarded against um, you know future gas price hikes and things like that, mm -hmm. um, and you know its energy consumption has been surprisingly low. So that's good to know. We've done a little bit of POE on the energy bills that came back. Um, it, it was made off-site using 
prefabricated timber panels. So its embodied energy is also very low and it's clad in cedar boarding and cedar shingles. So again, um, very good in terms of sequestering carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so this, I mean, one of the reasons we decided to do that actually was because um, the site, you know, is next door to lots of other buildings. And so, including a school, actually. So, you know, building work is quite messy, dirty and noisy. And we felt that it would be a good neighbor if we could make this thing off site and bring it to site and have it erected really easily. Um, and so it was brought site in flat pack panels, which could go up the garden very easily. You know, access right. was very limited. Um, and it went up pretty fast on a ground slab that was um, made by somebody else um, with all the services coming up through the trenches and everything. And then it was sprayed with insulation internally and taped up. And then the air tightness tests happened and then it got clad and all the interiors went in. So it was all done in really careful sequencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually worked really well on this site. We had a great bunch of builders um, from Eastern Europe, as I said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, we, like construction-wise, were you kind of borrowing, using techniques from, from other projects that, because you work on typically larger projects and, and not so many one-off houses? Yeah, that's right. Not really. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, you, you, you gather a sort of bank of um, knowledge about what the ways of doing things. But in fact, that was the, f- uh, let me think, was that, I think that was the first building that had a passive house planning package energy model made of it. Um, we've done one subsequently, actually, of of Stock Orchard Street before it was refurbished. Um, in order to try and determine where um, it was performing well and where it was performing less well. And that was very revealing too. And I'm quite a fan of that package now because Mm -hmm. it gives you very real data about what's um, happening or likely to happen. Um, And so it's more reliable than something like SAP, which, you know, uses a sort of fictional building um, to design to in order to get building regs. So, yeah. We're trying to do that now on many more projects, even if they don't end up being past our standard. You know, it's it's a really good way of modelling the energy consumption. Mm-hmm. And so, with this with this project, with roughly approximately sort of twenty years on from Stock Orchard, and you know, with the with the principles that you've applied here in terms of passive house principles and air source heat pump and things, do you, I mean some of the aspects? I would hope now they're kind of sort of regarded as not standard. They're still you know, it's the unique houses that have them, but a lot easier to do. Would you would you see that as a as a good thing over twenty years of time compared to Stock Orchard, or <laughs> or, or do you think there's been a, a serious lag? Um, that's a really good question, actually. Well, of course, I mean, I suppose the the biggest change over twenty years is the advent of this kind of technical ability to predict and model. Uh, buildings for their energy use. Um, And of course, we're now doing embodied energy as well, although that's far more complicated. When we designed Stock Orchard Street, we did a lot of research into what I'd call passive um, environmental design. You've got to bear in mind that, you know, people were really into sort of solar design at that point and sort of Walter Seagull's 
style, you know, simple materials and good energy efficiency around the building envelope. Um, and also orientation to sunshine, of course, and sort of breezes. And none of that is wrong. That's all very, very good starting point. So um, that was kind of knowledge in the bank. And we use that all the time on our projects because actually capturing solar, solar gain is really useful in the winter as long as it doesn't lead to overheating. Mm-hmm. But where passive houses revolutionized things and we didn't have this available at all when we designed Stockholm was this ability to crunch the data. Mm-hmm. And so, and and its ease of use has really revolutionised, you know, the sort of fine detail of how buildings work. And on Haycroft Gardens, for example, we looked at, you know, the amount of glazing in various windows and different orientations and so forth, and adjusted things accordingly and worked out whether or not some of the windows needed solar shading to stop overheating in the sun, summer sun, and all of the rest of it. Um, again, we didn't have that in Stockholm Street, and a lot of the work that um, sort of we've we undertook when we finally did this um, analysis was sort of verifying 20 years of post-occupancy, you know, evaluation that we had lived through mm. of knowing where which rooms overheat, which rooms are really cold, you know, where we needed additional solar shading or whatever, whatever, you know, and, and that's that was really useful. But mostly you don't have that luxury, you know, you're mm. expected to get it right at, at word go. And so the the Pass planning package is is, you know, it's where it, it kicks in and becomes really useful <laughs> yeah. working all that out beforehand. And I mean because you know, I think now, if, if Stock Orchard Street was built now, I think it would probably still be perceived as groundbreaking and, and revolutionary. Um, well, that's nice of you to say so. I mean, I think, it, yeah, go on. Well, I ju- I, and I just find that's, I think partly that's a shame. And I think it maybe comes back to what we were saying at the beginning of that you, you didn't work on any one-off houses in, in the meantime. Um, in between these these two projects as well. Yes. I mean, I suppose if I were to be really critical of Stock Orchard Street, the two things which work against it in terms of being super green are the fact that it's on stilts, so it's actually got mm-hmm. a sort of sixth facade, which would have been on the ground and should have really been on the yep. ground and insulated. And plus, I mean, for two people, it's pretty big. <laughs> 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 and a bit profligate <laughs> in terms of space. Um, so there's, you know, more to heat than we really need. Mm. But, um, I mean, it is delightful, I have to say, you know. And yep. in many respects, I think it's extraordinary that it works as well as it does, really, given mm. that we were very much sort of um, experimenting with, with this work, you know. Yes. Um, I think where it remains quite, still kind of quite innovative is sort of the the use of recycled materials and Mm. um, the fact that it puts on display this potential for waste streams to be incorporated into architecture, which Mm -hmm. hasn't really caught on because we don't really have a sort of comprehensive circular economy yet in the building industry. Um, but I think that's also challenging aesthetically, you see, because I think, again, it's not very commonplace to see a building look like ours, and possibly it's not everybody's aesthetic taste, but that aesthetic taste is very much dictated by what everybody's seen before and mm-hmm. what's um, available in the shops and, you know, what pre- what is the prevailing sort of um, doctrines that exist in, in our business. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that is kind of quite circular because... 
you know, if it's not available, you don't build it. And if you don't build it, you don't see it. And so, you know, it goes round and round. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose, I mean, one of the things that we definitely did set out to do was try and expand the palette of um, kind of available aesthetics, something like the, you know, the cloth cladding here, which is like a sort of upholstered Chesterfield, would be perfectly capable of being built anywhere, actually. Um Probably not at ground level because it is a bit vulnerable. It can get slashed or something. But, you know, mm-hmm. anything above ground level wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Um, but we all know that those aren't necessarily the... You know, the, the, these decisions are controlled by all sorts of things. And um, when we had our house valued, we had somebody come round from a, an estate agent who was horrified by what he saw and thought that it should all be tidied <laughs> up and, you know, reclad in brick. <laughs> You know, sort of like this is the <laughs> mindset <laughs> yeah. um, that is sort of out there, really. And you you find that it's insurance companies and you know resale values and all of these things, which are very much at the heart of why people do what they do. Mm-hmm. But Haycroft is a, it's, it has a lovely combination of it is unique yeah. and it does answer these questions, but it is actually a very marketable, sellable yes, exactly. project in, its, in itself in its own right. Yeah. And so now having kind of delved back into one-off houses with this project, um, are you hungry for more or is it a case of sort of dabbling and then maybe back to the... To oh, the we'd work? love to do more. I'm, and I'm, I'm slightly uh, sort of bemused about why we don't get more um, people coming to us about that. So... I don't know if anyone's out there that would like a one-off. <laughs> We're always in the game. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure why it doesn't really happen. I mean, it's fair to say we probably don't go out of our way to uh, pitch ourselves as people who do do one-off houses. And um, we we don't particularly market that as one of the things we do. Having said that, it's all on our website. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, you know, we've had very good publicity um, in, you know, the Telegraph and the New York Times and places like that. So it is getting out there. Yeah. Well, it's got such a fantastic story to tell. I mean, part of the reason we're here talking now as yeah. well as I just think, you know, on so, on so many levels, all the, all the topics that we're covering. Quite. I just wonder if, you know, this was in a sense a fantastic brief to, to land in the office. Yeah, we were um, really lucky. What would, if there were, if you could, choose the next one is there any kind of unexplored thing that you'd love to test on a on a one-off house that you'd love to arrive as, mm. a, as a brief well I, I wouldn't say that I'm sort of hankering after anything um I suppose I'm quite interested in this whole business about living and working on the same site mm-hmm. which um you know we've obviously we have done here and um, you know, we, we were the subject of one of the case studies in a wonderful book about um, called The Work Home by Fran Hollis. I don't know if you've come across it. Mm-hmm. She's a reader in architecture at London Met, or the CAS, I think it is now. And, um, you know, it sort of charts the history of people living and working in the same place, which is where I sort of referenced that thing about pre-industrial living, because actually, you know, get people living above the shop and, uh, you know, people living on the farm and all these kinds of things. But it's not just confined to spaces that are not urban. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Um, 
And so, and I think that's going to be a bigger theme going forward, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I'm still really interested in exploring what a green architecture is for the future and what something that can get replicated quite easily at scale is. And actually, the other thing we're, we're working on quite a bit at the moment is retrofit, how mm -hmm. to do eco retrofits on existing buildings, because after all, about 80% of our building stock in the UK is already built, you know, mm. um, or it's, it's, it's old and it needs quite a lot of attention because it was built in an era when, um, you know, fuel was really cheap. Mm. Um, and yes, I mean, you know, Barnabas Calder's recent book, which is a kind of view of architecture through the use of energy is so interesting. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we're entering a new era where we need to think of energy as very scarce and um, sort of without thinking about it as going backwards. I think it's about recapturing some of the knowledge that our forefathers had about how to live well, but without relying on masses of fuel. And I think mm. following through the implications of that are a really interesting challenge for us. And one of the things that Barnabas Calder in, um, sort of concludes is, you know, the building really, really, really massive buildings is maybe not the way to go. You know, it just assumes yeah. that they can be um, furnished with lots of energy, which, you know, maybe we don't have anymore. And I, yeah. I think that's a really interesting discipline, quite quite interested in the things that discipline what how we conceive of architecture and mm. think about it in a slightly different way. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I think the advent of cheap fuel has meant that we have become a little bit blind to how to live without it, but that actually that provides a lot of beautiful architecture. You've only got to think of, you know, any sort of vernacular architecture pre-oil age and to think about how they dealt with it like the wind towers and the Iranian plateau for example or the mud buildings in Mali or you know whatever it is it's fantastically sophisticated architecture that responds mm -hmm. to its climate and its landscape and I think we're in danger of we've lost that really because mm. of industrialization and I'm, I'm sort of interested in whether that comes back yeah uh, it's a fantastic book, Barnabas Calder's book. Yeah, um, it is, isn't it? It felt like going back to university, rereading a history book, Definitely. but with the benefit of hindsight of the last 20-odd years. Um, but he references, he, he talks very strongly about um, Cork House, which was yes. an inter one of the very first interviews I did on this podcast, which I think is a fantastic building. It is, isn't it? Um, it's good to see that. Um, there's the three questions that I ask all my guests at the end, Sarah, but I just quickly if i could just quickly squeeze in one more question just about christine and just what you think the impact of this house has been on on christine's well-being living in this place well as far as i'm aware it's been really good for her i think she's absolutely delighted with it and i think she's been uh, liberated by the ability to move better and more easily around the place find her way around actually live independently uh, um um, since she's moved in. Unfortunately, what happened uh, recently was that Ben, um, whose wife is New Zealand, a New Zealander, they went to see her parents, got stuck because of COVID. And so they've not actually been able to live in it together as a family, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So she's been there for a while on her own. Ben's been over to visit a few times. Um, but I think 
you know, it's, it's really made her life, um, you know, different and, and just worked so much better for her. She was having to climb a lot of stairs and that was really difficult. She was on a first floor flat. Um, and I, ju- I just think it's, you know, it's delightful. And to be able mm. to live somewhere which has been designed for you d- directly um, is is such a fantastic thing mentally. You know, it's just mm. lovely to be able to create the place that you want to live in. Mm. Now, it's a wonderful project. Um, okay, so... One of the, these are the three questions I ask all my guests. Um, and the first one is about you. Well, it's about Stock Orchard Street. Um, what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? <laughs> um, do you know, I was thinking about this and I can't really think of anything. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? <laughs> um, I suppose, I mean, that, that, what, we designed this building to be sort of quite interactive, like um, like the third skin around you, you know, after your clothing, like, mm-hmm. like your overcoat. So, you know, when you get hot, you open the windows, or if it's um, overheating, you push the, you pull the pull the blinds down. But you know, the garden needs a lot of maintenance as well, and so you know, there's, there is this thing of you, you want to interact with your environment. But it is also quite hard work. I recognize yes. that. And uh, for example, I'm always raking the gravel as you come in because it <laughs> just gradually slides down the ramp to our office and things like that. And, you know, little things like that really annoy me. But they're tiny by comparison with the joy that I have living here. I mean, you know, I, I'm so pleased to have made this place. It just is a lovely place to live. And it... it mm. uh, yeah, I can't imagine living anywhere else. <laughs> I've had I've had previous guests that have described or talked about designing maintenance as a designing it in as yeah. a kind of almost like a well being thing of it's good to look after something and it, it is have it require effort rather than be passive. Well, and you know, and there is a bit of a narrative in our culture about how buildings should be able to look after themselves. But I mean, they're like anything; they're like your mm. body. You know, you need a haircut now and again. You need to cut your toenails. You know, mm-hmm. all of these. You know, to have a bath, and you know, everybody has to do that. And it's the same with buildings; you have to take care of them, else they will yeah. deteriorate. It's just part of the business. And then, Sarah, if you could describe one house that you have visited that's really inspired you, and tell me why. Gosh, you know what? I was thinking about this, and I can't think of one single one, actually. But I think there have been a number of really formative things which um, I'm going to mention. So I'm sorry, I'm breaking your own rule here. But um, I I guess one of the first ones was Maison La Roche, because I had never been to a building which was spatially so complex and fantastic um, as when I went to that house by Corb in Paris Mm -hmm. and the same is true actually of a lot of his buildings in uh, like uh, Ahmedabad and things like that which I've seen and so that was one I mean I think sort Mm -hmm. of the complexity and the kind of architectural promenade I think another one I should mention would be the Maison de Verre and I'm not interested in it in terms of what most people get off on which is it's sort of um erasure of people in favor of technology in fact i'm very very critical of that but the thing that i'm quite intrigued by is and you'll recognize this from stock orchard street is the fact that it combines a workspace and a home in the same environment Mm -hmm. and in fact they are 
bizarrely muddled up where you come in in the same place, whether you're a patient or a member of the family, and you go past certain spaces where you know, the workspace, the gynecology suite is presented to you even as you're way, on your way up to the family mm-hmm. home. And I'm very, very intrigued by that building and have written about it because I think it's a, an extremely interesting uh, sort of conjunction of family life with, um, you know, people's ability or inability to conceive, which is a really interesting scenario. So I'm quite interested in that mm-hmm. thing as well. Um and I mean, I'm also very, very interested in sort of and, and love the buildings of the arts and crafts era. So something like Blackwell's in Cumbria, I think it's by Voisey, um, absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic with its sort of ingle nooks and lovely little bay windows and secreted spaces. And, you know, this, this idea of the sort of medieval house where different parts of the family um, live, both collectively and also privately mm-hmm. as well. Um and I mean, I'm very, very interested in, you know, the way that uh, foreign uh, cultures sort of conceive of family life through, you know, so, sort of different generations living around a courtyard and things like that. I was really, mm-hmm. when I went to Iran, I just was absolutely bowled over by the um, sophistication of the courtyard houses there, which, ref- you know, they're, they're partly um, arranged around sort of gender segregation and what's what's private and what's very public but they'll also respond to the climate because you move around the courtyard depending mm-hmm. on what time of year you capture sun or you get rid of sun and so on because it's extremely hot and keeping cool is the big agenda um and incidentally i mean i think that's going to be a huge agenda for us going forward under climate yes. change as well it's going to be the overheating issues which are the biggest things to contend with mm-hmm. so i think there's a lot to learn from other cultures <laughs> the, the bifolding door era. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, and if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> um, myself. <laughs> well, I'm not just myself because actually probably um, it would have to be done with Jeremy that I live with because, you know, we have this sort of symbiotic kind of dialogue going all the time where we're sort of feeding off each other and yeah. winding each other up and posing each other with difficult questions and, you know, asking why we're doing this and what, yeah. what are we trying to do and all these <laughs> other difficult things which, you know, are very existential but are quite important about sort of um, keeping you grounded, Yeah, you know, while you're doing it. Okay. Well... Sarah, thank you very much for, for giving your time for this interview and for sharing this lovely project with, uh, with the listeners oh, as well. Thank you. I've been really pleased to be talking about it. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Sarah Wigglesworth Architects and the project Haycroft Gardens, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then please leave a review because it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. 
In the interview, Sarah references the book Architecture from Prehistory to Climate Emergency by Barnabas Calder, one that I highly recommend reading. In the book, Barnabas uses the project Cork House as an example of a sustainable way forward for house design. Cork House was the feature of episode 3 of the podcast and a project that I believe sits alongside Stock Orchard Street in the context of pioneering sustainably designed homes. If you'd like to listen to that episode, you can play it via the episode link on anotheracitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode and thanks again for listening.